You're listening to Felony Podcast with your host, Dave Dahl, on the Startup Radio Network. The Felony Podcast explores ex-felons that have gone on to launch their own startups. We explore the ups, the downs, the behind-the-bar stories with these founders. Felony Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. My name is Mark Grimes, co-founder of Startup Radio Network. Also with us in the studio, Dave's partner in crime, Lad Justison. And here's a man with a plan, leader of the band, buff and tanned, Dave, the killer bread man, Dahl. Well, unfortunately, Mr. Dahl is uh, not with us today. He's uh, at a African art convention down in San Francisco. And he's lucky because here in the big town of Portland, it's... It's just it's just about ready to dump a bunch of snow on us. It's true. It's true. Yes. So you know what? Welcome to the Felony Inc. podcast, coming to you live from Portland, Oregon. We share stories that show again and again that there is light at the end of the tunnel. That happiness and success are a state of mind, not the result of material gain and fame. Eh? Don't get me wrong. I like making money just like everybody else does, but it's really learning to rock the journey with all its ups and downs that I call success. You know, our best guests on Felony Inc. have discovered the amazing power of accountability and have converted adversity to wisdom and a success mindset. Most of our guests have been convicted of felonies and are now honest, hardworking entrepreneurs. Our guest today... Um, is not a ex-felon or formerly incarcerated person, but we'll talk to her in just a minute. But first of all, I would like to welcome my guest host, Noah Schultz, who has been on the program before since Dave's out of town. Noah slipped in with us and like to thank him for uh, coming up on this, uh, you know, this program with us today. What, what have you been up to, man? Well, thank you, lad. Excited to be here, as always, with you guys. Um, man, things have been moving steady. Still working on Forgotten Culture Clothing on a steady basis. Just did a photo shoot with the Blazers yesterday. Um, and doing this reform work, man. Just got back from L.A. a little bit ago. Did a West Coast convening with a whole bunch of leaders down there. Met with some people from Homeboy Industries, from Resolve, Revolve Impact. Just some amazing groups of people out there doing some incredible work. So I'm especially excited to hear from this guest. Yeah, me too. You know, <clears throat> the other day we were talking about this program that you went to down there in California where it was kind of cool because you told me you walked in there and these guys are all tatted, mm -hmm. but they had great attitudes. They were doing 100%. what they were supposed to. Tell us a little bit more about that. So, yeah, real quick, a quick plug for Homeboy Industries was um, it started in 1998 in Boyle Heights, I believe, and it has become a program that is operated from the community um, as, a, as a healing source for rehabilitation, but also bringing people up to their highest frequency, their highest potential, and really pushing them in direction and giving them support to be successful people. But most importantly, show that anybody is salvageable. Anybody can come back. Anybody can can make an, uh, another move in their life to, you know, shift their direction. Well, that's just exactly what you did, you know, and of course we talked about that on uh, our previous show when you were with us, but you were previously incarcerated, um, but right. you took advantage of uh, the incarceration with education and a change of attitude, and now you're out and you're doing great. 
Thanks, man. I'm trying every day. Well, yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, get to our guest. Um, uh, the company or the program or the nonprofit or whatever, it's called Cut 50. And the national director and co-founder, Jessica Jackson Sloan. Now, isn't that quite a name right there? That sounds like a movie star name or something. <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> Comes to the criminal justice movement from the personal perspective of having a, f a family member incarcerated. How many of us know about that? Sure. The professional perspective as an attorney. And here's the good one. The public safety perspective as the mayor of Mill Valley, California. Hey. Welcome to the program, Mayor Sloan. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. So good to talk to you. Well, it's good to have you. What, what's the weather like down there in California? It's actually raining, unfortunately. It's, it's been pretty nice here, but I don't think we can complain because we really need this rain. I just looked at the forecast here for the Portland, Oregon area, and it's snow for the next week or so. Uh, yeah. Oh, my Ooh. gosh. And you know what the worst part about having snow in Portland, Oregon is, is that nobody is prepared. Not it's the worst the place. It's the worst place to, to, uh, to live when it snows because uh, defensive driving all the way. So... Um, Jessica, why don't we go back? I'd like to go back a little bit, and can you tell us a little bit about um, your family member that and we just discussed a minute ago, um, and how it impacted you, and why you got into what you're doing today? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, growing up, uh, I grew up in the Bay Area, and we have San Quentin State Prison here. I don't think that I really thought much about the issue of criminal justice reform. You know, we have um, kind of a belief growing up that, you know, prisons are a good thing because they protect us. And that really didn't, um, it, I, that wasn't debunked for me until I was 22 years old and standing in a courtroom in Georgia, holding my two month old daughter, watching my husband get sentenced to 15 serve six. Hmm. Uh, mostly for his drug addiction. And in that moment, I realized, you know, prison was not going to help him. Prison was not going to get him the rehabilitation he needed. Uh, it was not going to give him the support he needed to kick his addiction and, and be able to move forward with his life. It certainly wasn't going to help our family. I didn't even have a job at the time. I just had my GED. Um, so, you know, in a brand new baby to deal with. So when I went to visit him, you know, I honestly thought it was a fluke at first. I, I couldn't believe that they'd made this mistake and put my husband in there. And I got to the visiting and I looked around and there were so many families like mine. And he came out and he came down and we started talking and he was telling me about all these people he had met and all the ridiculous reasons why they had been sent to prison and how they actually needed help and support instead. And it was, you know, then that I realized how widespread this this problem was. So I decided to go to college and then law school and uh, become a public defender. I actually started my career representing men and women on death row here in California and then met Van Jones and co-founded Cut50. Awesome. All right. So can you explain a little bit about Cut50? In my mind, I'm thinking... Um, it means you're going to try and cut the, the prison population by 50%. Am I correct? 
Yes, would like to cut the prison population and crime by 50%, and I think the two go hand in hand. We've seen states like Georgia or Texas um, that have actually gotten rid of prisons and still reduced the level of crime in their communities. Well, so so going back, you know, you say that you had a GED when your when your husband went to prison. Yeah. So that in itself motivated you to to go to college. And uh, how did you do all that? You know, by yourself with with a child. You know, I I now have a four year old, uh, and I look back and I think about how hard it was when my older daughter, who's now fourteen. Uh, was a baby and I think I must have just my ignorance and how difficult the situation would be um, was probably a blessing because you know at 22 you think you can do anything so I just went and signed up for school Um, luckily I had taken my SAT before I dropped out of high school and uh, they took my SAT scores and admitted me at the University of South Florida and I think for the first time in my life, because when I was in high school, I, I hated school. I was not an on-track kid. I had my own drug issues. Um, you know, I, I was very social and I hated school. I saw no purpose mm-hmm. for it. And for the first time in my life, when I decided to go to college, I had a real reason. I wanted to be a public defender and I wanted to make sure that, you know, what my family had gone through wasn't happening to families across the country. So, um you know, it was very difficult, especially because my husband was still in prison. And I felt so much shame and stigma from that. Um, I remember, you know, the other kids in, in my classes trying to talk to me and asking about my life. And I, I lied to them. I told them, you know, my husband was working in another state. I didn't say he was working for the Department of Corrections. Um, <laughs> so I guess it wasn't totally a lie. But, you know, I, I was that... Uh, traumatized and embarrassed about what had happened that I I didn't even put it on my applications to law school, which, you know, in retrospect, probably would have been a smart thing to do. But um, and then, of course, there's the financial burden. And I don't think people realize how difficult that is. You know, Mm -hmm. I took out a lot of student loans, but I also worked full time while going to school and raising a kid. And I think, you know, it definitely was hard. It definitely took a toll. Um, We had to get on public assistance at some points, but it was well worth it in the end. So you doing all this on the outside by yourself with a child, what type of an impact did that have on your husband in prison? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, unfortunately, part of our story is is the way that prison kind of ripped our family apart. Um, He was first located in a place called Pelham, Georgia, and I was down at, in Tampa because as soon as he went to prison, I didn't, I didn't have a job. I didn't have a way to pay for our house, so we had to short sell on the house um, and, and kind of take a loss on that. And then I moved in with his parents for the first you know, six to nine months that I was in school down in Tampa and eventually you know, moved into an apartment closer to um, the university. But... I couldn't afford the phone calls uh, to talk to him. It was $21 for 15 minutes, and a lot of the time the phones would just kind of click and hang up in the middle of your call. I would drive an hour out to his parents' house on the weekends and then sit around all day Saturday hoping he'd get phone time so we could talk. And then, of course, you know, there was four of us in the house who wanted to talk to him, um, so we didn't get very much time. It was hard to kind of really get into a conversation on the phone. And at first he was in Pelham, Georgia, so I could drive up there. It was about an eight-hour drive. 
um, and then I would turn around and, you know, have the visit, turn around and come back. Um, but gas was very expensive. I didn't have money to stay in a hotel. I think we stopped at, you know, the Waffle House or the Golden Corral each way, but that was really it. And I had an infant. So, you know, even that kind of drive with her was difficult. And then he got moved to North Georgia because he was an electrician before he went to prison and, and they wanted him to continue to work for the state. You know, of course, I say work, but I mean, for, you know, 50 cents an hour. Um, so once he was up there, I, I couldn't visit him at all. And I think, you know, we tried letters, but eventually, you know, we we drifted apart. And when he came out, uh, we got a divorce. Oh, so and how's he doing? I mean, is he doing okay today? Is uh, staying out of prison? You know, he's he's doing okay today. He's um, you know, he went through some of the typical things. Unfortunately, that people who are coming home from prison and stuck in the system still through mass supervision have to go through. Mm-hmm. At one point, I remember, and we have a daughter together, so obviously we still have had to stay close. But I remember. Um, you know, he had gotten an apartment, he had gotten a new job, he had really gotten his life kind of pulled back together, and he got pulled over for a busted taillight, and he had already transferred his parole down to Florida, but unfortunately, the parole officer in Florida hadn't filled out all of the paperwork, so they didn't know that he had been reporting regularly, and next thing you know, he's got a technical violation, and he's thrown in the back of a paddy wagon and driven back to Georgia, which took a week before we could get him out. And unfortunately he lost his job and then he couldn't pay for his apartment and was back to square one. So, you know, he's been through quite a few setbacks and um, I don't think anything that he went through in prison helped him get back on the right road when he was coming home. Jessica, I think you you bring up a really, really good point around family engagement and the lack of family engagement in some of these facilities and the fact that this is one of our leading contributors to rehabilitation for someone who is in in that process. And uh, I I thank you for for bringing that up because that does impact not only the individual's return to society, but the whole family. And a lot of people don't see that. I I think that's 100% right. And then there's also another element that it took me kind of a lot of of time to really realize. And actually, um, it wasn't until I was inside a prison, I volunteer in San Quentin prison, it wasn't until I was in there talking to some guys in there about sort of family dynamics that I realized some of my own trauma around it was, you know, when he was using, and I say this as somebody who had my own issues with drugs, you know, when he was using, um, especially when I was pregnant, uh, you know, I felt as his partner, I just wanted him to stop and and get ready to be a dad. And um, I was very angry with him for kind of what we were going through with his addiction and him not addressing it. But the minute he got arrested, all that had to fall by the wayside because suddenly I was the only person he had. So Mm -hmm. I'm standing up for him and trying to get in touch with a lawyer and trying to come over to the jail and visiting and when you're visiting somebody, you know, once he got convicted and, and he was in visitation, when you're visiting somebody, you don't want that to be a bad visit, right? So you don't really get an opportunity to deal with kind of the anger and the hurt. You don't want to sit there and complain about not having money for bills or tell them, you know, it's all your fault that we're in this position or anything like that. So you kind of have to hide that, but it's not like the resentment goes anywhere. Exactly. So there's just no outlet for the family to kind of get through that moment and i think that really led to you know a lot of why our our marriage fell apart 
Yeah, that, you know, traveling here in Oregon, you know, they have different prisons in, uh, you know, around the state, of course. And some of the prisons are, you know, two, three hundred miles away Very from far. the families, you know, and that that's really yeah. a <clears throat> excuse me, that's really a burden on the families when they have to yeah. travel that far to see their family, you know. But we've had a guest on our show. Um, his name's Alex Petter, and he started this company. It's called uh, Corio, and it's a telephone company, kind of like Telmate or whatever, but. It allows you to leave messages, um, text, uh, do a whole bunch of different things on the phone system that allows the family and, and potential employers or whatever, you know, um, people that need to get in contact with to be able to, to, you know, to have contact with those inmates. And I think it's getting a little better. Um, and the prices have dropped a little bit, so it's getting a little better and easier for, you know, people on the outside to, to contact and stay in touch with their, with their families. Yeah. No, we've seen a lot of a lot of things pop up. We've seen the video visitation as well. Um, but with that, you know, I'm always kind of hesitant because a lot of the time prisons or jails are, are trying to substitute um, in yeah, in person visits with the video visitation. I was at a Metro United um, jail in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, they were showing us all these different. We did a tour, and they were showing us kind of all these different, you know progressive programs, the fact that they get people onto Medicaid as part of their intake, the fact that they've got this enough is enough program to help people who are um, suffering withdrawals. And they have a parenting class there, which I thought was great. Hmm. But then they took us to the visitation room and it was just a whole bunch of video monitors. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. that is not a substitute for in-person no, I, I have to agree with that. You know, you have to have contact. It's 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 a personal thing, you know. So, um, you know, I, I I went to your website and I was watching a video on there um, about this young lady that went to prison and she she um, had a miscarriage while she was in there. Uh, quite a striking video. Um, yeah. How did you come across that, and how 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 did that impact you? Yeah. So. Pamela Wynn is a force of nature. That's the woman in that uh, video. She's actually our dignity ambassador down in Georgia working on a bill to ban the shackling of women and provide them with, um, ban the shackling of pregnant women and, and women in labor down there and, and provide them with hygiene products. And she's just done a phenomenal, phenomenal job um, collecting stories from women to show that this is actually happening in Georgia. Um, I first met Pamela right after we had introduced the Dignity Bill uh, with Senators Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris back in July of 2017. And um, Pamela started a petition that had a description of her story on it uh, online for the bill. So we reached out and, and got connected to her. And she came up to D.C. to do a roundtable meeting with Cory Booker and, and some of the other legislators. And it was like her passion, which really is, you know, her pain, mm. um, it just shines right through. I mean, she's just a warrior for this issue. And, of course, you know, what she went through, um, and, and folks can find that video at DignityAct.org, what she went through, you know, was life-changing for her. Uh, to lose a child because she tripped over shackles and was denied the medical care that she needed, you know, it's it's just uh, devastating. But she's been able to really 
turn that uh, pain into action. And I had the privilege of sitting next to her um, in the galley. We were there when the First Step Act passed back through the House. Um, we had been able to get some of the provisions out of the Dignity Bill into the First Step Act, including the ban on shackling of women uh, while they're pregnant. And I was sitting next to her while Karen Bass from um, the Bay Area was speaking about uh, her story, about Pam's story, and she was crying. And, you know, we watched the vote, and, and she just immediately started crying because all of her work has now turned into something solid. There's not going to be another woman in federal prison who goes through what Pam Wynn did. Well, that's a good thing. You know, it's it's amazing how you can go through an experience and uh, use it, you know, not only for yourself, but to benefit others. Well, Jessica, we got to thank our sponsors, and so we will be right back. Okay. CPA Dudes, where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com slash startupradio. Tell them Dave and Lad sent you, and we'll send you a very special surprise. Seriously, we will. Today's episode of the Felony Inc. podcast is brought to you by Publicize, a deconstructed PR subscription service which generates effective visibility for your business. Publicize handles all communications with the media and any content required to do this, such as press releases, editorial pitches, etc. And they offer a wide range of PR products and abilities out of which you can construct the PR package right for the future future of your business. What do you think, Jessica? Do we got those DJ voices down or what? You definitely do. You know, me and Dave, uh, have you had a chance to read Dave's story at all? Um, I don't believe so. I would love to, though. Well, you just uh, go to davedoll360.com and uh, it's got a lot of stuff on there. Yes, I have many times. Yes. Dave's Killer Bread. Got Dave's it. Killer yep. Bread. <laughs> that, that's that's the guy. You know, we have um, employment summits in in conjunction with their Dave's Killer Bread Foundation. Oh, really? Yeah. Here in Oregon or down there? No, um, down one in San Francisco, one in Atlanta, one. I'm trying to remember where the third one was, but yeah, we we worked with them on. Oh, it was Seattle. We worked with them on some employment summits that were really, really effective. Well, you know, that's it's just amazing what Dave um, has accomplished and is still accomplishing. And uh, um, I hate to give him any kudos for anything because he's my he's my best friend, and I don't really, you know, try to build him up too much. He's already got like a head that won't fit through (laughs) a door frame. So, (laughs) so anyway, um, let's get back to now. Obviously, you were. Living in Florida, Georgia, wherever it was back back east, and uh, so you made a transition to California. Now, how did you get uh, the ball rolling to where you, you became an attorney, and obviously now you're Mayor Sloan? How how did all that come about? Uh, well, interesting. Uh, so when I was down in Florida, um, I was in the Honors College and had to write a thesis on a topic and of course the only thing i cared about throughout my entire college experience was criminal justice and um 
I decided to do my thesis on the expansion of the death penalty through case law and how, you know, what was initially intended to be uh, a punishment for, quote unquote, the worst, the worst had been expanded to so many cases. And so I got an internship at a uh, capital collateral regional council helping represent folks who were on death row. Now, I was just an intern, um, but during that first summer I was there, something very important happened. It was the lethal injection challenge uh, case of Bayes versus Reese went up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And at the time, we had a, a lethal injection case as well. And unfortunately, it was decided against uh, the client and he was executed. So that was sort of the first time that I really saw just how severe the consequences of the criminal justice system could be up close and personal. And I decided that while I wanted to be a public defender, I really wanted to focus on death penalty. Um, so I set out to find whatever law school had a death penalty clinic, and I settled on Santa Clara School of Law because they had the Brian Scheckmeister Death Penalty College, where I, I later was a research assistant. So that brought me back to the Bay Area. And, and once I was here, um, I you know interned at the public defender's office and my mom was still living here and my sister, so it was good to be back home. Um, I moved right back to Mill Valley, uh, the community where I'm now on the city council, as you said. And um, I initially had a really hard time finding housing. Hmm. Uh, housing in the San Francisco Bay Area and really in a lot of places in the country is just you know out of control. There's such a, a housing need and a crisis really around the housing shortage. So. Um, I got pretty frustrated. I did find an apartment about 600 square feet for my daughter and I to share. I think it was 1500 a month. Now it's Dang. about 3000 <laughs> a month. Um, but I decided to take action and get more involved. And that led to me actually running for city council. Jessica, I have a quick question. Were, when you were working at the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, by any chance, were you working with Jeff Adachi? Yes, so I okay. was an intern over there. I, I worked for a great attorney named Stephen Olmo, um, who himself was formerly incarcerated and, and just so inspirational. It was the perfect supervisor for me to have. Um, but Jeff Adachi was uh, the public defender there, and I've continued to stay in touch with him. He's amazing. Yeah, he, he is an amazing guy. I spoke over there at the San Francisco Public Defender's Office about last year, actually. And oh, cool. I, was, I was very impressed by just the, the work that they're doing in that city. Yeah, yeah, lots of out of the box stuff around free trial. Definitely, definitely. Uh, lots of diversion. I mean, it's it's really, you know, the attorneys there. I just have so much admiration for them. They're always pushing the envelope and always fighting for their clients. And that's not an easy job. No, it is no, not. It's I really, not an easy I really job. don't feel like people see what goes on the other side of public defense. But these these public defenders are overloaded with with caseloads that are they're drowning in that. So, um, yeah definitely got a newfound respect for public defenders yeah and, and you know it's all across the country you see the same thing especially in the south when for my sure. husband uh went to prison it was before they'd even established the statewide public defender system in georgia it was back in 2004 um and at the time you know our attorney our public defender had something like 300 cases and wow. you know most of those were felony cases yeah. there's no way yeah, you can you actually get provide adequate defense. representation yeah, for sure 
So, Jessica, yeah. I, I have a question. Uh, you said that you've been into San Quentin. Um, obviously, there's death row inmates in San Quentin. Yes, they have the death row. They're actually a minimum security <clears throat> prison, but they also have death row. So, are you familiar with uh, the Last Mile program they have there? Yes, I'm very, I'm very familiar with it. I've been in there and, and seen them at work. And uh, Beverly, one of the founders, um, has has worked closely with Cut Fifty on uh, the national legislation that we just passed. But I think they're definitely a model for, you know, actually teaching people skills while they're in prison and making sure that they're able to get, you know meaningful jobs and meaningful opportunities when they come home. Well, you know, back when Dave was uh, still with Dave's Killer Bread, of course, he sold the company back in 2015, Mom, uh, we traveled to San Quentin, and Dave spoke um, at the Last Mile program, and then we were also able to meet a bunch of the, uh, the uh, businessmen and women from around the San Francisco area that support the business, or right. support the program, excuse me. Um, it was really cool to see that, you know, that happening um, at that level. I mean, I know they pick the best, um, you know, the best guys in the education program there to do this with, and they have to have a lot of faith in these guys in order to, you know, mentor them, take them through the program, and hopefully eventually get out and offer them a job. You know, I mean, that what yeah. a great thing that is. No, I, it's exactly what's needed. In fact, I'll tell you, when... We first got a call from White, the White House last year from Jared Kushner, and he asked us, you know, he told us he, he wanted to work on prison reform, and he asked us if we would come and, and help pull together a bipartisan meeting of folks who were on the ground working in prisons and, and reentry facilities and, um, you know, showing what, what works, basically. And I invited Beverly from the last mile, and you know, she came with us um, and talked about the last mile and the impact it had had. And I say that because I think that meeting with all of those reentry providers and, and especially folks like Beverly was very impactful in crafting the First Step Act, the, the prison reform portion of it. Because once Jared and some of the other White House staff heard just how impactful and how successful um, the programming in some of these prisons has been in reducing recidivism and also preparing people to come home. You know, they were even more excited about uh, putting money into federal programming. And uh, I think in the end, we ended up, you know, putting in $75 million a year oh. uh, per year for five years into the federal prison system so they can have programming like The Last Mile as well. Yeah, that's, you know, that's that's one of Dave's big things is that, you know, Dave, his turnaround in prison was because of, of course, medication that helped him with his depression. But the other thing was education and a vocation that uh, changed his life around for the first time in his life. He realized he was good at something. So in the prisons these days, you know, when I was in there, you know, I was in the Oregon prison system as well. Um, whenever there was a budget cut somewhere, um, it wasn't the salary of the guards that got cut. It was the vocational training programs yeah. that got cut. And that's unfortunate because, you know, you give a, a guy or a, a girl or a woman um, a, a job. You know, something they, when they get out, they can apply for that job and, and they're good at it. It gives them a sense of purpose. And, you know, 
put somebody in prison for 10 years and they get out with nothing, you know, just like they went in with, it's not a good thing. Those programs are, are super valuable. Yeah, I agree 100%. And actually, here in California, we've got a bill uh, to kind of encourage, even once you're out, that people continue their education. We know that with an AA, your uh, chances of recidivating drops by 73%. With a BA, your chance of recidivating drops 95%. So clearly, education is closely tied with rehabilitation and, and actually succeeding when you're coming home. So We've got a bill that creates a incentive structure where people can earn time off of their parole by successfully completing their education, even once they're home. Um, and I think this is a model that several states are now looking at because it's just been so obvious that once you get that training and once you get that education, um, there's a pathway forward for you. You can't just take somebody out of the negative circumstances they're in, put them in a cage for five, ten years, exactly. and then put them right back in those circumstances, not only you know, with no new skills, but also with the stigma of a felony conviction, right? So yeah. I, I'm excited by kind of the direction I've seen around education in prisons. Well, you know, Noah did that. Noah took advantage. He was a star pupil when he was in prison. And not only was he a star pupil when he was in prison, but this guy... He motivated other guys in prison to take advantage of what they had in there. And, and Noah, do you still take? Are you still going to school now that you're you out? No, I'm. I'm. I'm not. I. I really. I, so I did seven and a half years, and I turned that seven and a half years into seven and a half years of education. And I know that the the Oregon system was a little bit different since I've traveled now across the the country and seen different prison systems, and what's really being offered. So I fell under something to where I was in a youth facility for seven and a half years, but I was sentenced as an adult, so left with an adult felony. And um, while I was there, I was able to take advantage of college. They had online education, and that's where you really got to see people come to life when they were given these opportunities because so many people have been living in fight or flight and have never really had the chance to let that let those talents shine. And uh, as you know, working in these, these systems, you see some incredibly talented people and when given the opportunity, they can really take advantage of that and, and move forward in different kinds of ways. And you know, absolutely. And you know, I know on a personal level, just what like what Noah's talking about is that I dropped out of high school, um, probably my junior year, and I always thought, you know, that I wasn't the smartest guy in the world. You know, I just had that stigma in my own head. But when I went to prison and, and I was offered a GED program, as a matter of fact, you had to take a GED program in prison uh, in order to get a job at that time, which is a good thing. I, I think that's a great thing to motivate guys to, to get that down. But when I went in there, all of a sudden I realized, wow, I'm not that stupid. I, I took the pretest, and believe it or not, just a pretest, my levels were up high enough just to take the test. And so I took the test and passed it, and that was really an eye-opener for me because all that time I thought, you know what, I don't even know if I'll be able to pass this mm -hmm. thing. But on the other side of it, I was able to pass it, not only pass it, but just go right in and take the test and get out of there. And that's what these guys and girls in prison, they need something like that in their lives to show yeah. them for the first time that, you know, not all's lost. You know, I've seen yeah. many people go to, to college after, uh, you know, in their 30s or 40s or even later and didn't realize until they went to college that they had a great aptitude for it. 
No, I, I think that's 100% right. And it's interesting you bring it up because um, when we were writing the first step act, we were having to look at kind of risk and needs assessments. And I think I fundamentally have had some issues with the risk and needs assessments. And um, obviously there's been bad data about risk assessments. So we were working really hard to make sure that there were safeguards so that this wouldn't amplify any existing racial disparities in the system, mm -hmm. which we were you know, able to do and, and we'll continue to get the data from and monitor. But one of the things I think fundamentally wrong with that is there's not very much information that a person can get about themselves when they're given a risk assessment, right? Like, yeah. great, I'm a high risk or I'm a low risk, you know, that doesn't really tell you anything productive. And we went researching and, and actually found a study that had been done where they had administered strengths tests to people in prison. And they, for the first time, many of them had learned what their strengths were, right? So what areas they excelled in, whether it was analytical skills or whether it was, you know, um, logic or, or whatnot. And they were told a list of occupations that would be matching those skills, those strengths that they had identified in them. And what they found in that study was that it actually substantially reduced recidivism because once people understood, you know, I'm strong in the area of math, you know, maybe I could be an accountant. Um, it motivated them to pursue their education or their training in that area. And it was more of a natural fit. Um, so that's something that I think definitely moving forward uh, you know, we weren't able to get it in because we didn't find it so late in the game on this bill. But I think going forward, it's something that we're really going to advocate for because I think it's so much more useful for somebody to know their strengths than what level risk they are to society. And I think there's just so much, you know, Van, my boss always says there's there's hidden genius or locked behind these cages. And I think that's right. I've met guys in there who are just some of the smartest and, and women too, I should say, some of the smartest, most talented people. And I think we're really seeing that now as so many people are coming home and, and joining the criminal justice movement. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, Noah, um, I'm impressed with Noah every time I get a chance to talk with this young man. Just the things that, you know, he's took from prison and and used all that knowledge that he had you know back in the old days when he was slinging drugs and doing all that stuff he was an entrepreneur but he was in the wrong direction so now he went to prison he was able to switch all that around and use that that uh, entrepreneurialship that he used selling drugs and he was very successful at that to switch around and, and do a business that's what that's what these people need to be able to see is to take you know the bad things they've used and and been through in their life and use it in the opposite direction absolutely absolutely and i think it's also good for people to realize they have value right we all want to wake up and make a contribution in the world we all want to have purpose in our lives and you know i i didn't feel like i had a purpose in my life until I had my first daughter and until, you know, I discovered my passion for the criminal justice system, unfortunately, you know, through my husband's incarceration. Mm -hmm. So people want to find purpose and they want to get up every morning and make a difference. You know what, Mayor Sloan, we got to thank our sponsors one more time. So we'll be right back. Hmm. Support for today's episode comes from our friends at Ruby Receptionist. 
At Ruby, they've mastered the art of turning rings into relationships. Their team of remote receptionists answer all of your calls live as if they're right there in your office. And with Ruby's mobile app, you easily control just how they screen, transfer, and take your messages. Start setting your business apart today. Visit callruby.com slash startup radio to sign up or better yet, call them at 833-861-8100 and use promo code STARTUPRUBY. Tell them Dave and Lad sent you and you get a $150 credit. You know, that's weird that uh, Dave actually read that uh, advertisement there because um, his nickname is Ruby. Did you know that, Alon? I did not know that. Is this is this true or is this a, a leg pole? I know this. That's what I'm like. Is that a joke? I don't know. Man. That's his nickname, Ruby. That's what I call him. Ruby Dave. It sounds like he's singing for uh, Van Halen now or something. <laughs> no, it's not Ruby Dave. It's Ruby D. Oh, Ruby D. Ruby D. Even better. <laughs> anyway, let's get back to uh, Mayor Sloan. Um, so I think uh, that Noah has a couple questions for you. So, Mayor Sloan, I wanted to ask you, uh, so I really love Cut 50. Um, I first heard about it from reading Writing My Wrongs from Shaka. And yep. uh, so very, very familiar with what you guys do on that side and have a lot of respect for, for that ambitious goal that I think is achievable if that over-reliance on these close-to-custody facilities is, um, you know, taken back. But my question for you is, how do people get involved with Cut 50? And what kind, of, what kind of things can they get involved with if they want to be a part of this movement and this cause? Perfect timing on that question. I, I feel like you just uh, read my mind. So awesome. it's actually <laughs> great timing. One of our biggest events of the year is happening in less than a month. Um, so the way that Cut 50 works is we have humanization and legislation. I believe that you cannot change laws until you've changed hearts and minds on this Absolutely. issue. And the only way you can do that is by putting a human face to this issue and telling the stories of those who have been impacted. And at Cut 50, we don't like to just tell stories for people. We like to empower people to tell their own stories. Um, I'll say as a side note, uh, this last year, you know, we were able to pass a sentencing and prison reform bill, and it was the first uh, one to go through federally in over 30 years. And everybody comes to me and they ask me, how did you do it? How did you do it? How did you do it? And I, I got to say, it wasn't me. It was the formerly incarcerated um, members of our empathy network, our network that spans across the entire country, 50 states, uh, that came together and showed up and went to their district offices and flew out to D.C. and told their stories to lawmakers. So it's just yeah. so, so powerful 100%. when you put that human face and human story to it. Um, so on March 5th, all across the country, in every state capital, uh, we are hosting the Day of Empathy. It's our third Day of Empathy. And anybody can join, can go to our website, cut50.org, and sign up to be a part of it. Um, but you show up at the state capitol, you're part of a rally, you go in, you meet with the legislators, and you talk about how you've been impacted by the criminal justice system and share your story. Um, last year, I think we had over 2,000 volunteers show up across the country. We took over 500 legislative staff meetings. Wow. I think it was formally recognized in six different states on the floor of their um, House or Senate or Assembly. And it actually spurred eight bills that we did wow. last year because people came up and talked about their experiences and lawmakers said, oh, my God, I didn't realize that was happening. Let's change that. And they did. That's awesome. 
I think it, I think it really shows. I mean, we have enough information on how much money is being put towards this system that that really isn't being utilized to its full potential in terms of rehabilitation. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, man, you got to engage the hearts. I mean, engage their minds with the statistics, but you have to engage their hearts for that change. So, well done on that approach. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I well, it's go yeah. Ahead. I I was just gonna say, you know, we saw two nights ago uh, in the middle of a speech that you know I I think most of us could have done without. Um, you know, we did see a good moment in the State of the Union, and that yeah. was when uh, <clears throat> Donald Trump recognized Miss Alice Johnson, who he had given clemency back in in um, early 2018. And he talked about her story and her coming home, which I think had captured the hearts of so many people in America. They had a certain image of the person who came home from prison. And that was completely thrown out the window when they saw this 63-year-old grandmother yeah. running across the street to be home with her her family who otherwise would have died in prison um and then he told the story of matthew charles the first person to come home under the first step act and they showed matthew's smiling face standing there and again that melts so many hearts across america and you just look at him and you say i don't want you to be in prison mm -hmm. you know you you're successful at home you need to be here making contributions to your community instead and then the president said, you know, welcome home, Matthew, um, which, again, this is a president that ran on, you know, American carnage and tough on crime. And here he is in the middle of the State of the Union welcoming home uh, somebody from prison and talking about what a add value they're going to have to society. Wow. So I think it's those stories that if they can melt somebody like Donald Trump's heart on this issue, you know, think how much progress we can have with the rest of the legislators in the country. That's right. You know, on a side note, um, here in Portland, Oregon, um, of course, in Oregon in general, um, they've legalized marijuana. How how has that affected, in your opinion, uh, you know, the smaller, um, you know, crimes that used to send people to prison, you know, over, over you know, having a little bit of weed? Well, I, I think there's a couple of different things. One, legalizing marijuana itself and taxing and regulating it doesn't necessarily get rid of um, a lot of the disparities in the system. In fact, it actually amplifies it because it's legal for me to go to a dispensary in San Francisco and pick up marijuana from a business there with a business license, but it's not legal for me to go over to Oakland and buy marijuana from somebody on the street, right? That's still a crime. And unfortunately, a lot of folks who don't have the money to be going to dispensaries are going to still get caught up in the system. Um, so I think we have a lot of work to do there. There's also a fundamental unfairness where you see people now being um, sort of applauded for giant marijuana industry dispensaries and, and all of that. And there's still people who are sitting in prison, some serving life terms okay. for doing the exact same thing, um, but without the business license, right? So I think we still have a lot of work to do. Um, it's definitely a overall the message is helpful because it, it's talking about not criminalizing people for drugs and instead, you know, maybe addressing it as a public health issue or taxing and regulating it. Um, but there's still a lot of work to do. All right, Jessica, um, it's just about time for us to uh, end this episode, but I want to thank you for being on with us. Is there anything that you want to 
throw out there, your Facebook, um, you know, yeah. anything you want yeah. everybody to hear? Yeah, I'd love if folks could go to the website, cut50.org, and sign up to be a part of our Day of Empathy. They can also follow us on Twitter, at cut50. Um, and we'd love to uh, have some, even if people can't show up on the Day of Empathy, we're going to have some online engagement, storytelling, um, sharing of stories. We've got some cool influencers who are going to be involved to make it even more fun. So would love to have folks sign up and, and join the movement. Well, Jessica, it was great having you on today. Um, I'd like to say I'm really proud of where you, you know, began with uh, your husband going to prison and uh, where you, you are now. So keep it thank up. You. And uh, so, and I'd also like to thank our guest host today, Noah Schultz. Oh, thank you, man. And thank you, Jessica, for the work that you're doing out there. It's, it's really it's incredible. And man, all props to you guys on that side. Well, thank you, Noah. I hope our paths cross soon. Oh, it will. It will. I'm going to hit you up. <laughs> yeah, if you're ever here in, in uh, Portland area, please look us up and come by. And uh, Well, my sister just started you. at University of Oregon, so I think I'll be up there. Okay. That's where I'm from. I'm from the Eugene area. And all right. I loved the Ducks back when they weren't even all that great. <laughs> so anyway, thanks for joining this week on Felony Inc. Podcast. Join us every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time at StartupRadioNetwork.com and catch upon previous episodes on any podcast app. If you know it's good for you, you'll shut up and listen. If you don't, I can't promise you that we won't show up at your place late at night and make you listen. This will be full-on breaking and listening. And, of course, a big thank you to Jessica, I should say, Mayor Sloan. And we'll see you next week. And coming up after the break is Latino Founder Hour with your host, Edgar Navas and Claudia Cardenas. Their podcast is usually in Spanish, so estás escuchando la red de radio de inicio. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen. Learn. Launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.